You know, I was just thinking, I love music. That's the way I sound when I'm in the shower. <laughs> I'm not a very good singer. Um, often in, when we come to these times of praise and worship and the praise team leads us, I often can't sing because I'm so gripped by some of, the, some of the words. And in fact, some of the words I was reading this morning, I was, as you were singing them, I was struck by the fact that you know, so often the words we're singing are not the way I live, but it is a prayer, isn't it, that you want to live that way. You know, don't you want to follow after the Lord all the time, even though you don't? I do appreciate our praise teams. Uh, I'm Pastor Tim, the executive pastor. Pastor John is on vacation this week and next, so I have the great privilege of preaching this morning. Before we get to that, Harriet kind of quickly noted that our summer service hours are going to become our regular service hours. It's really only a 15-minute difference between the two services, but we like, our people are really liking that we get you out of here before noon so you can get to lunch, and so please know that we are going to um, continue that. It was December 27th, 2009, very significant date that Brian has never let me forget about. You know, as the executive pastor, I have the great joy of preaching from time to time. And as you know, if you've been a part of our church, that I've been preaching through the, the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached. It's been called by our Lord, by our God himself, the incarnate man, God, came to earth as a man, and he preached this great sermon. There are those, by the way, that think you could just study the Sermon on the Mount till you die and you'd be okay. Um, December 27th, 2009, that's the first sermon I preached on the Sermon on the Mount, and Brian has given me a hard time ever since that it's the eternal message, but I just want you to know that I stay within the scriptures which are eternal, so I'm okay with that. Preaching on the Sermon on the Mount over this long period of time has had its advantages and its disadvantages. For me as a part-time, you know, filling the pulpit when the senior pastor is gone, it's been a great advantage for me because it's given me direction. You know, you have this sermon that's in these nice little kind of mini-sermons, and so it's really, if, for example, if I'm called upon in short notice for some reason to preach, I don't have to spend a lot of time deciding where I'm going to preach on. I always know where I'm at, so that's been a great advantage. But there has been a great disadvantage, and the great disadvantage is this. It's very hard over that long period of time to keep the context of, the, of that great message in view. And I've spent a lot of time, you're probably thinking he says this every time he preaches because we cannot, and I do, because we can't miss it. There is a greater context to these, to these little mini-sermons that Jesus is giving. There's a greater context, and that greater context is this, that when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, he preached it before he had gone to the cross. He had not died on the cross yet. So the point of the Sermon on the Mount overall is to drive us to the cross that he would soon die on. It's to help us to see that in and of ourselves we cannot do, we, 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 we can't be righteous and holy. We need a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus Christ. Once a person has given their life to Christ, there is kind of a secondary context, and that secondary context is that we as citizens of the kingdom of God are called to live a certain way, and the sermon helps us to know how we are to live as believers. 
which by the way, you cannot live as Christ calls you to live unless you have the Holy Spirit within you. So it starts by giving your life to Christ. To miss these two great points is to miss the context of the scriptures, of these scriptures, and is to potentially misinterpret it. Dr. D.A. Carson, one of, I think, one of the greatest modern-day theologians, gave credit to a very famous text to his father, who was also a preacher, and the, and the, the, the quote goes like this. Many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with it. A text without a context is a pretext. And what that means is, is that without examining the context of something, or without examining the context of what's being said, one can easily miss and maybe intentionally miss the meaning of a particular of the particular language or the particular um, conversation. A text with a, a text without a context is a pretext is trying to tell us that if we grab statements out of context, we might consider that we could, correct, we could incorrectly interpret what's being said. It is the most basic law of, of language, by the way. If you're talking to your wife, me speaking as a man, if I'm talking to my wife and my wife is talking about something and I'm thinking she's talking about something else, I can understand all the words she's saying but totally misunderstand what she's really trying to say. You all understand that, don't you? It's a basic law of interpretation. And I bring that up today because of the text we're going to look at. To grab this text out of context can get us into a lot of trouble. So let's read it, and then I'll see if I can show you what I'm trying to say. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 11. I realize in your bulletins it says Matthew 7, 7 to 12. This is the life of a pastor. I don't think 12 goes with 11, so I initially thought I would go through verse 12 and change my mind. Sinner saved by grace. Matthew 7, 7 to 11. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? When I read that text, I immediately am reminded of some other scriptures. (laughs) <laughs> of which Brian quoted some of them this morning. John 16, 24. Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Kind of sounds the same to me. James 4, 2. You don't, ha- you don't have because you do not ask. Each of these verses, and including the text we're going to look at today, can be easily misunderstood if you grab them out of context. If you grab them out of context, it can be like this. If I want it, all I got to do is ask God and he's going to give it to me. 
Anything I want, just I just got to ask and he'll give it to me. In other words, if you grab it out of context, it could almost be like God is like a genie in a bottle. You know, you rub the bottle, he comes out and he says, what do you want? This is what I want. And then he gives it. <laughs> and we do that all the time. We've got to be very careful. The John 16, 24 passage, for example, and I don't have to, I'm not going to exegete all these scriptures for you today, but just to show you, when we read, until now you have not asked for anything, maybe we ought to consider what it goes on to say, you have not asked for anything in my name. See, that's key. The James 4, 2 passage, you do not have because you do not ask God. Maybe we should go on and read the rest of it that says, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask for the wrong motives. See? And if you begin to take things in context, you, you get a better idea of what the Lord's saying. And then, of course, how often have I heard I mean, uh, Christians say, God wants to give you the desires of your heart. So all I got to do is desire it, and he'll give it to me. And they fail, that's, that's Psalm 37, 4, and they fail to remember what, says before the, what comes before what that scripture says. Delight yourself in the Lord. What does that mean? See, that pays, that's some context that goes with, and then he will give you the desires of your heart. People think, you know, if I want it, if it's my heart's desire, they don't read the context, and they don't even take into context, into to view the greater context of the scriptures, which says in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful and wicked. Who knows it? In other words, our hearts lie to us. You catching what I'm telling you? We got to be careful to take things into context. And then when we talk about desires, the scriptures, if you get to the bigger context of the scriptures, there's a lot to be said about desires. Do you know if you look up in a, in a concordance, there's 234 occurrences of the word desires. That doesn't include desire, desired, it's just desires. And a lot of times those scriptures tell us that our desires are not godly. So to think that God's just going to give us everything we desire is a mistake. And as a young believer, I struggled with this because I thought, well, it says if I ask, he'll give it to me. So why didn't, why didn't I win the state championship in racquetball? I asked him to give it to me. We don't want to make that mistake again. So as we look at these passages today, I'm going to break them up a little bit and try to see what the Lord is telling us through the text today. So let's read the first portion of that again. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receive. He who seeks, find, finds. To him who knocks, the door will be open. Now, when you look at that passage, there are three what we call imperatives. And imperatives are like calls to actions or call, calls to do something. Ask, seek, and find. Those are the three imperatives. We are told to ask, to seek, and to find. And I'm not going to spend, there, there are some guys that think there's some kind of a progression there. I, I don't want to spend my time on that because I don't agree with those guys. I really think it's just saying three things the same way, trying to drive a point home. 
Now, when it says ask, seek, and find, and it calls us to do that, you got to understand, I'm going to give you a little bit of a Bible lesson. These imperatives are what they call in the present tense. And if something is in the present tense, that means it's a continuing action. It's not like you ask once, you seek once, you knock once. In the present tense, it's very clear that it ought to be keep on asking, keep on seeking, and keep on knocking. It's an ongoing lifestyle kind of thing. Now, whenever you are told to keep on doing something, there is this idea of persistence involved. You keep at it. What are we told to be persistent at or in? Well, it's clear that Jesus is speaking. These are obviously the words of Jesus. And if you have a red-lettered Bible, you can see all of this is in red letters. So Jesus is speaking. And when he says, ask, he's saying, ask him. When he says, seek, he's saying, seek him. When he's saying, knock, he's saying to knock at the door. So it's talking about prayer. It's talking about communicating or asking, seeking, and knocking to God, to Jesus. So it's talking about prayer. Persistence in prayer is what it's talking about. Now, persistence in prayer is something I would submit that we Americans really struggle with. I really do. By the way, I don't think it's the idea of persistence. I don't think we struggle with persistence as Christians or as American Christians. I see persistence all over the place. I mean, just think about exercise. I see a lot of people that are very persistent to get themselves in shape because they want to look like me. No. But I mean, I, I belong to a racquetball club and I see these weightlifters. I see people running. I see people playing racquetball. And I mean, they're very persistent at it. They're walking around with their jugs of water, which I don't quite understand that. But they got their kind of ugly jugs of water that look like you wouldn't want to drink anything out of that, but they do, and they're very, I think they're persistent about the food they eat. It's all about getting in shape. Now, by the way, I'm not saying that's bad. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that's bad. I think we should, I mean, I, I try to stay in shape too, and it's getting harder as you get older, let me tell you. I see people very persistent with money. I mean, we have apps for our phones that show us what our investments are doing. I mean, in a moment's notice, we can, I can't because I don't have anything, but people that have something, they can hit their app and they can see what their investments are. I'm not saying that's bad, but I'm saying they're very persistent about it. They keep up with it. It's not a problem. They're very persistent. Many people are persistent in their, in their jobs or their occupations, working really hard to, to do a good job and to walk up the ladder. I mean, I see a lot of persistence there. I see a lot of persistence in parenting. You might disagree with me because we think we've lost parenting. Well, I think there's some things we need to work on, but I see a lot of persistence in parenting. Uh, helping kids to have what we think they should have, I see a lot of that. I mean, there is, you know, the athletics they're involved in, the academics, the, the, the dance, the baton, the gymnastics. I mean, we have, we're very persistent getting our kids involved in these things. By the way, baton twirling. I'm telling you, if I wanted to make money, because I go to these parades and there's like 25 different baton twirling schools. 
I don't, I, I, I don't, I, I don't know. I, I can't, I don't know what that is all about. If you're a baton twirler, I'm not putting you down. I just, I just find that interesting. But we're very persistent. <laughs> we're very persistent at getting our kids involved in things, helping them to, to excel in school and all of that. I mean, if we think they need it, we're very persistent at, get, at getting it for them. Politics. Just go on Facebook. There's some real persistence when it comes to politics. Athletics and sports teams. We're very persistent. If we're a fan, we're very persist persistent. By the way, I want to go on record as saying is I think the stars are back in alignment because the Dodgers are finally on top. Um, but I also want to tell you I have a lot of Giant fans, and I'm being, being serious. I'm, I'm really hurting for them right now because they're struggling, and I really mean that. And you, you diehard Dodger fans, come on. Love your brothers because they loved us when we were in the cellar. I'll call, I see a lot of persistence, for example. I'll call, it's kind of a negative term, but I see a lot of term. I see a lot of persistence in what I'll call vanity. You know, this uh, uh, vanity is defined as exaggerated self-love, inflated pride in oneself, one appearance, attainments, performance, possessions, and successes. And what I'm talking about is I see a lot of persistence in things like clothing and homes and entertainment and all the things we think we need or feel like we want to make us feel happy. I see lots of persistence there. By the way, Church falls in that someplace. I see a lot of persistence in church life and, you know, being around what we think our families need, you know, religion. You know, there's a lot of persistence there. But persistence in prayer, that's another thing. I ask people all the time, tell me about your relationship with the Lord. And I hear this, I hear this all the time, which, by the way, I think it's an honest answer. I think we all ought to answer this way. Um, it's not what it should be. I hear that all the time. I don't read my Bible enough. I don't pray enough. Which, by the way, tells us that most people don't even understand what prayer is because the idea of prayer to most people is involves something like when I bow my head, I close my eyes, and I speak to God. It's kind of a, you know, kind of a rote um, duty you know, it happens when we, prayer is when we ask a blessing at the dinner table. It's, and there's far more to prayer than that. But people are, most people don't think they're good prayers. And they, they cease to, to remember that prayer is more than just bowing our head and talking to God. It's being in an in a active relationship with Him. It's communicating with him. It's learning about his heart and what he wants for us. I was really impressed last week. I, I loved our student services last week. Um, but I was really caught by something that our junior high pastor said. And he said that there are three things that they try to do with students. One is, is to help students understand who God is. To help students understand or discover who they are. And to help students to understand what happens when those two collide. And this is more the idea of what the Lord's trying to teach us here today. Prayer is being in an active relationship with God. Who is God? If we were to answer the question, if we were to try to help students to discover this, He's the creator of the universe who loves you, who wants to be 
in your life and he wants you to have more of his kingdom. He wants you to depend on him, which is why, by the way, we don't have to ask God for him to know. You know, it's not like he has to wait for us to talk to him so that he'll know what we want or need or should have. He doesn't need that. He already knows what we're thinking before we even express it. But he wants us to depend on him. He wants us to come to him. And this is why he tells us to ask, seek, and knock because he wants us to depend on him for all that we have. Who are you? We are humans, by the way. I know that's a revelation. Those are the kind of revelations you get from a guy from Tulare. We are humans. We are created special in the image of God to be in a special relationship with him. Do you realize as human beings, we are the only ones who have the ability to be in a personal relationship with our Lord. And he created us perfectly, but we are also infected by sin, which separates us from God and should constantly drive us to seek after him. What happens when the two collide? We begin to realize that our Lord, through our Lord's leading, that we have lost our way. If you're sitting here today and you feel like you've lost your way, it might be that you need to come to the Lord. We need a Savior, and that Savior knows what's best for us, and He wants us to depend on Him. This is prayer, being persistent in seeking after Him and being in a relationship with Him. That's what the Lord is trying to tell us. What are we told to be to persistently pray about, here's where context plays such a role. Are we supposed to be persistent in asking the Lord for everything we think we need? No. Nowhere in Scripture does Scripture tell us that if we ask, God will just give it to us. We don't even know what's best for ourselves, by the way. What would it be like if God gave us everything we thought we needed? I mean, if you go backwards, I wouldn't have my wife because there were other people in my life before her. I'm so glad he didn't give me what I thought I wanted, because he brought me so much more. In context, we are to be persistent to ask the Lord for the things he's been talking about. In this great sermon, he's laid out all these things, and now he's saying, ask me and I will give you these things. He's asking us to be persistent in asking him for the virtues he's been talking about. He's telling us to seek after the things of God. He's telling us to knock at the throne room of God that we might know what he wants for us. What are some of those things? Let's take a quick walk backwards. And there's so much more to this, but I'll just give you a few. He starts the sermon by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. What, what does it mean to mourn? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means to realize that we are lost in our sins. And Jesus Christ died on the cross for us, that if we come to him and ask him to come into our lives, he will give us that. It's talking about dealing with sin in our lives. He said, blessed are those, in verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's asking God to give us a desire to hunger after the things of righteousness. 
He talks about being the salt of the earth, the light of the world, to let your light shine. That's what the kids were singing about at Golden Oak in the video you saw here. He's asking us to knock at the throne room of God, that God would help us to be the kind of person that would live a life that others would see him through us. And then he dealt with so many other things. We are to ask God to help us to control our emotions. This is why he spoke on anger and murder. We're supposed to ask God and seek after God to help us to be sexually pure. And in this culture, that's so difficult. But he talked about lust and adultery and all those things. He wants us to seek after him to be a person of our commitments. This is why he says, do not divorce and speaks on that whole issue. He wants us to seek after him to be a person of, our, of his word. Do you know how easy it is to lie? I mean, I know most of you would, would go, no, it's not easy to lie, and you're lying. <laughs> because it's very easy to stretch the truth, to not tell the truth. We do it all the time. And Jesus says, let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. And so it's asking God to help us to be a person of our of our word, because that, because God's honest, and God's a person of his word, so he wants us to live that way. The, per, the persistent prayer of asking, seeking, and knocking is a wholehearted pursuit of the kingdom of God. That's what he's telling us to go after. Dr. D.A. Carson said this, the Western world, now listen to this, this is an incredible quote, the Western world is, we are the Western world, by the way, we are at least part of it. The Western world is not characterized by prayer. And I'm talking about prayer and seeking after God, being in a relationship with him. By and large, to our unspeakable shame, even genuine Christians in the West are not characterized by prayer. Our environment loves hustle and bustle, smooth organization and powerful institutions, human self-confidence and human achievement. And I'll tell you what, your self-confidence gets racked as you get older. I mean that seriously. When you think you got everything taken care of and all of a sudden your body starts to fail on you, that's where humility begins to come in if you handle it in the right way. New opinions, novel schemes, and the, cheat, the church of Jesus Christ has conformed so thoroughly to this environment that it is often difficult to see how it differs in these matters from, from contemporary paganism. What he's saying is we don't seek after God and his righteousness because we get so caught up in seeking after the things of the world. James 4, 2, I already quoted in 3. Let me read it to you in its entirety. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask God, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Well, Christians ought to hear that. We know the world does that, but Christians, that's not who we are called to be. Now, when we pray... And when we ask God for the things of the kingdom, and when we ask God to give us more of him, what can we expect? What, how can we expect him to answer that? Well, he gives us an example. It's very easy to understand. Verse 9 and 11 of chapter 7. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? 
Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? By the way, that illustration dispels what many people think about God. Do you know that people actually think that God is kind of standing in heaven waiting just to mess with them a little bit? Waiting to ruin their lives a little bit. I mean, people think that. Now, they may not say it like that, but here's how it comes out. Why would God do this to me? Why would God allow this to happen to me? I don't understand why this is happening. See, they think God is kind of messing with them. And that's not what this illustration says who God is. Jesus' illustration or argument teaches that God loves you. And he uses the picture of an earthly father. Now I understand people say, can I just, can I just correct something right now? Because your dad treated you bad doesn't mean God's going to treat you bad. It doesn't, I, I was raised by a dad who was an alcoholic. I was not raised by the perfect father. But I never blamed God. I never thought God was like him. Where do we get these notions? God loves you and he wants the best for you. And speaking of earthly fathers, what father in their right mind, it's almost like God's saying, or Jesus is saying this to us. Jesus is God, by the way. It's like Jesus is saying, what father in their right mind if their son asked, if, if his child asked for bread, would he give him a stone that looks like a loaf of bread to mess with him? And what father in his right mind, when his kid asks for a fish, would give him something that looks like a fish, but it's a snake? It's ludicrous to think that a father would do that. But he does say, he does talk about um, snake. If you then, speaking of the dad, if you then, though you are evil, a father is not in his right mind. I, ho- I hope you understand that. You dads out there, you're not often in your right mind because your mind is affected by sin. But Jesus goes on to say, even a father who is evil knows how to give good gifts to his child. If that's the case, how much more will I give you? If you ask, seek, and knock after God and his righteousness, he will certainly make himself known to you. That's what it's saying. People say, I talk to God, but he doesn't listen. I don't feel like he's there. Well, that's not the way God is. Maybe the problem is you're not listening. The Christian life is all about, I can tell you, I've studied the scriptures for the better part of my adult life, and I still feel like I fall as short as I did the first day I met him. You know, you're, the, life, the life of a Christian is constant evaluation. And so this morning, I think the Lord's calling us to evaluate. Right now, think for a moment. How would things change if you and I really persistently pursued after the things of God. How would that change our exercise and what we do at the gym? Well, I can tell you how it changed for me. 
Because going to the gym and playing racquetball, which is my drug of sport, I mean drug of choice, playing racquetball, going to, I, I, was, I was going after the state championship and about, about ruined my marriage because everything was about winning. And then when the Lord came into my life and it took me out on Sundays and all those kinds of things and all of a sudden I realized something had to change. Something had to change. So I gave up competitive racquetball and it changed. I still play racquetball, by the way. This is just one example from my life. But now I play it truly to try to stay in shape and truly to try to be a witness. Because I can reach guys with the gospel because I can play racquetball with them. I can be competitive with them. And I've seen a few guys come to know the Lord as a result of that. So it's changed how I even compete. What about money? If we really persistently pursued God and his kingdom, how would that change our, what we do with our money? It, listen, you have to have money, by the way, because you have, to, you have to live. There's nothing wrong with having money. But really, is life just about living, working, putting money away, getting a a retirement so that when I get older, I can die with a bunch of money in the bank that I never spent. <laughs> I mean, is that what it's all about? Or is it about making money to live, but also making money to further the kingdom of God? Would we not be quicker to want to give our, work, our money to the work of the Lord? How would it change our parenting now, by the way, before I say anything, you might think I'm against you on this, but I'm not. I brought up all these things, dance, athletics, you could say soccer, softball, you know, football, all these things we get our kids involved in. And I want you to know, I really do think Christians ought to be in the world to witness to the world. So I think it's good to get our kids involved in these things. But I think sometimes we get so involved in them, you know what takes a back seat in our lives and what we communicate to our kids? That the Lord's not really that important. What's really important is winning the championship of the AYSO soccer season. Wow, that's going to last an eternity. Or what if you're a coach or, or anything like that? How would it change what you do and how you do it? I think we need people in the world, but I think we need to evaluate. I think we are way too busy, and I think we don't persistently pursue after the things of God because we're too busy pursuing the things of the, of the world. And I think we need to evaluate that. What about politics? Do not get me going on that. Because if we were persistently pursuing, I'm going to go on it anyways, because I have two more minutes. Persistent, if we were persistently pursuing the Lord and his kingdom, we would spend less time criticizing politicians in public forums, and we would begin praying for them. Gee, I'm, sweat, I'm spitting, I'm seeing things everywhere. <laughs> We would spend time praying for them because don't we need a president that knows the Lord? Don't we need senators and representatives and mayors? And don't we need Christians that will follow the Lord? Well, let's pray for them. And what about our athletics and our sports teams? I don't really know how that would change. I mean, I don't know about being a Giant fan or a Dodger fan and how that changes if you're pursuing, really pursuing the Lord. But I can tell you this, I would never stay home on a Sunday morning to watch a sports event. 
just for the record. I think so often we get so caught up in this stuff, we stop going to church, we stop, we, we, we let our devotional times go and all those kinds of things. And what about our clothing, our cars, our home, our entertainment? I think all these things that we think we need to have to be happy. I don't know that I can answer all of that, but I can just tell you just a few things that our family did. We never let worldly things take us away from the things of God. If, my, if our kids were in an athletic event, they didn't play on Sunday. I don't care if it got them on the bench. If our kids had something to go to that was a church thing and their coach said they, if they went, they were off the team, then they were going to be off the team. That's just the way we did things. I don't do things late on Saturday. My wife will tell you, we don't do things late on Saturday. We're not out late on Saturday because I don't want to be tired on Sunday. We wouldn't let our kids go to the youth group and not come to the services because the Bible says we are not to forsake the fellowship of believers, the corporate community. And I'm amazed at how people will pick and choose when our Lord said, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. How can you forsake the Lord's church because you're too tired, or, you're, or you have something else to do on Sunday, or this or that, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to la- lay at home, I'm going to sit at home this afternoon, I'm going to feel like you all hate me, but, but I will tell you this, and I mean that seriously, it's not easy being a preacher. Because you, you second-guess everything you say, but I will leave you with this. Matthew 6.33 says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things I will give to you as well. And my question to you this morning, do you really seek after the things of God, or is God just like a wallet in your back pocket that you just pull out occasionally when you need him? That's what I think we need to think about today. Why don't you stand, we'll pray, and you will be dismissed. Father, even as I preach this message, I'm, I'm guilty myself. Not a one of us persistently pursues you, seeks you, tries to have more of you and, and your kingdom in our life. We struggle with that, Lord, because we live in a world that so, is try, so tries to draw us into its way of thinking, and we fall for that. I pray this morning, Lord, through your Holy Spirit, that you would speak to every one of us, each one of us individually where we're at. Make us aware of the things in our lives that we need to get squared away. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.